Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 4 then. Last week we started this chapter. It's the Cain and Abel chapter. We read through verse 16, verses 1 through 15 or 1 through 16 last week. And then we made it pretty much up into verse 5, the first part of verse 5. So we're going to pick up from there and uh, see how far we get. We're going to leave it up to God's good measure of time as to how far we get. But to read so far just those few verses, somebody might read verses 1 through 5 just to give us an idea of where we've been so far. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the first firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So last week we looked at these five verses, basically, like I said, getting up into verse 5 without completely finishing verse 5. Some of the things that we discovered along the way is we were trying to examine and figure out why was it that God looked at Abel and his offering with favor, but he looked with disfavor at Cain and his offering. And we examined or questioned the possibility, well, maybe it's because of a difference in the offering. Maybe it's because Abel brought something that required blood to be shed and that Cain brought something that didn't require that. And you'll remember that we came to the conclusion, no, it doesn't seem to be that. It seems to be something other than that. Uh, we looked at some of the other clues that we have here. One of the other clues being verse 4 gives us that Abel brought of the firstlings, of the flock and of their fat. And you remember how we talked about how the fat was something that was desirable to God. It was in fact instructed that when you were to bring an offering, that was considered part of the best of what you would bring. The first would indicate part of the best of what you would bring. And perhaps it had something to do with Abel bringing the best where Cain brought just some. And then we began to look at some of the New Testament perspective on their offerings. And you remember we found that in Hebrews 11.4, we were given a clue that by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So you can see behind me, I wrote on the board there under Abel's name, that he has this element of faith in conjunction with the offering that he brings. And the contrast being that perhaps Cain's offering wasn't attended with faith. His was without faith. Matthew twenty three thirty five provided this the clue that by the lips of Jesus himself, Abel's called righteous. And that would seem to imply that Cain's not righteous. And we have confirmation of that in 1 John 3, 11 through 12, which we'll look at in a few moments. Luke eleven fifty through 51, Jesus himself describes Abel as being among the prophets which is kind of interesting because we don't have any actual recorded prophecies given by Abel. In fact, we don't have any spoken words at all by Abel. 
in the Old Testament or in the New. So it's kind of curious why Jesus would call Abel a prophet when we don't have any recorded words on, on his part. And then that passage I mentioned just a few moments ago, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, that passage says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So we have, and you can see it on the board there, Cain's works were evil. And where Abel was described as righteous, Cain gets described as of the wicked one. <laughs> and then you find if Cain's works were evil, because his works were evil, evil, it also says, and his brother's righteous. So Abel had righteous works. Abel had righteous character attributed to him. Cain had wicked works, his works being evil, and he was of the wicked one. So you, you have a little bit of a picture that's coming to light based on some of the New Testament perspectives on this situation with Cain and Abel. And the contrast becomes more and more clear. It seems that it's not a matter of the gift as much as it is something going on with the giver. All right, They both are going through the motions of worship. They're bringing an offering to God. But it looks like Abel is engaged sincerely in worshiping God, where Cain seems to be engaged insincerely. That there's something deficient in his attitude, in his motive, in his heart, in his devotion that isn't deficient with Abel. One of the suggestions where you see that Abel is described as a prophet, yet we have no words attributed to him, that perhaps the prophecies were prophecies that were given to his brother. That perhaps Abel, knowing that his sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't, perhaps he said to his brother, you really, you really got to change your motive. You really got to change your attitude. If you don't, God's going to have something bad in store for you. We don't know. This is speculation. It's a possibility. Dave, you're raising your hand. Perhaps you written oral tradition that is outside the Bible we don't have. There is a lot of written and oral tradition that we sometimes we'll rely on to try to fill in some of these gaps. And that is a real possibility as well here too. So yeah, there's this possibility that his prophecy has to do with speaking to his brother and trying to encourage his brother to make the right choice, to, to do it over again or to do it right next time, that, that type of thing. Again, speculation there. All right. You know, one of the things that struck me as I was preparing for this is that they are engaging in worship and that... When we engage in worship, sometimes our attitudes are like Abel's and sometimes our attitudes are like Cain's. Maybe I'm not speaking for anybody but myself, <laughs> but I'll admit this. On Sunday mornings in worship, there are times when I'm really feeling like I'm entering in. You've heard that phrase, you know, I'm entering in. And then there are other times I'm feeling really distracted and I'm thinking about chores I've got to do after church. And I can't help but now think that perhaps in those times, me allowing myself to be distracted by those kinds of things is perhaps just going through the motions of worship, but the attitude and the motive is not where it should be. That really I'm behaving more like Cain in those moments than I am with Abel. That I'm going through the motions as if that's going to secure me some kudos with God just because I'm there at church, just because I'm singing the song, just because I'm closing my eyes. Do I really think that I deserve any sort of favor on the part of God 
because I'm there and I'm checking off my checklist of going through the motions of worship, when really my mind is out in the yard, or my mind is under the hood of the car, or my mind is at work. It's a challenge to me to hear about being able to engage in what looks like worship on the outside, but really God sees our hearts, doesn't he? And he knows what's going on on the inside. So it's a challenge to me to examine myself even more completely. Am I here for God or am I here just because, well, that's what we do. Am I here to find out what God would tell me or am I here because we all got in the car this morning and it would be kind of embarrassing if I had stayed at home and changed the oil? I need to make sure that my motives are true and proper. And if they're not, to repent of those things and to enter in like I should be as opposed to just looking like it. In that verse 5 where it says, but he did not respect Cain and his offering and Cain was very angry. Cain was very angry. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. We would look at this verse and we would say, well, he's angry, it's not too late. And that's true. It's not too late. He hasn't murdered his brother yet. Jesus ends up saying something about anger and its relationship to murder. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Excellent. Thank you, Big Dave. So here we have in these verses, we might be tempted to think, oh, murder, that's really bad. But we might excuse ourselves for being angry. Because after all, doesn't the Bible say, be angry and don't sin? So it seems to give us permission. I can be angry. Jesus seems to be holding a higher standard for us here. The higher standard being that Jesus, knowing full well this story and knowing that his audience would be familiar with this story, recognized and pointed out that Cain's murder of Abel could be traced back to Cain's anger, right? It was his anger that led him to the murderous act that he did upon his brother. And so Jesus would say to us, you think you're doing fine by not murdering. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you to go a step further and stop yourself when you get to that point of anger. When you get to the point of anger, throw up the red flag, spiritual red flag. Throw up the white flag saying, God, I surrender. <laughs> I give it over to you before, it, before allowing it to become something worse than it is. So Jesus saying over here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, that's fine. You've heard, you've heard it said, don't murder. That's all fine and good. But he says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. By the way, that in danger of judgment phrase that's there in the middle of verse 22, it's the same phrase that's used after the murder phrase in verse 21. You shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. So when Jesus is reckoning, murder and angry with your brother bear the same punishment. The punishment, by the way, in the Old Testament for murder was you killed the person. It was a capital offense to murder somebody. So I'm not saying that we should go through and look for people in our church that are angry and kill them, <laughs> not by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm saying we should look for that in our own lives. 
And if we're allowing seeds of anger to fester in our own lives, we should be getting those out. We should be going through our lives and weeding out the areas of anger that maybe we've allowed ourselves to hold on to, to our detriment. Because really, it's hurting us and our spiritual life with God. It's not hurting the other person unless we allow it to go further than it should. All right. He did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Verse 6, going back to Genesis 4, 6. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? Once again, this is similar to the questions that God ended up asking Adam and Eve. Remember that over there? He asked questions that he knew the answers to. So what was the motive in the questions that God asked Adam and Eve? Why was God asking questions when he already knew the answer? Back in the Adam and Eve story. Cain is aware of those people that he's asking questions to or become aware of their anger, their motives maybe. Right. He's kind of looking to it in a sense to try to set up a time of repentance maybe, a time of coming clean before God. Sometimes do you feel like God's asking you questions? That he already knows the answers to, but really what he's doing is he's trying to get you to a point of repentance where you might feel, why, is it, why do I feel this qualm in my life over this area? Maybe it's God leading you to a place where he wants to see repentance. Moving on from there, why is your countenance fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. If you do well, will you not be accepted? The Hebrew word that's there for accepted, it actually means to lift up, to lift up a countenance or to be lifted up. And that's in contrast to the, why is your countenance fallen in the previous verse? So it's kind of a little play on words there. If you do well, does it sound like Cain has a choice? It does, doesn't it? It sounds like God is confronting him. God is calling him to an account hey, this is what I see going on in your life. And God is presenting to him a chance. Notice God has not condemned him yet. God is calling him to account for a deficient form of worship. God is calling him to an account because of his lack or somewhere he's lacking that he needs to step it up a bit. But God has not ultimately condemned him or rejected him yet. He hasn't cursed him yet, right? So he's coming to Cain and he's saying, you got this area, I want to see you work on it. If you do well, he's giving him a choice, right? If Cain couldn't do well, it would be ridiculous for God to suggest that he could, right? So by God suggesting, if you do well, that's implying he can. So you have a choice, Cain. If you do well, then you get result A. And if you don't do well, you get result B. If you do well, will you not be accepted? This discussion that God is having with Cain right here is kind of reminiscent later of a discussion that God has through Isaiah the prophet to Israel, where the whole land of Israel during the time of Isaiah ends up getting a sort of warning slash rebuke through the lips of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1. Just reading a few of those verses over there. Isaiah 111. Listen to the similarities to this short verse here to Cain, God speaking to Cain, and God speaking to Israel through Isaiah through several of these verses here says things like this. In verse 11, it says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Doesn't that kind of sound like what God's talking to Cain about? Is about the sacrifices, right? So God's saying to Israel, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the, the fat of fed cattle. 
I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Just as God would be saying to Cain, your offering, it doesn't do it for me if your heart's not in it, right? If your devotion isn't there. Verse 13, bring no more futile sacrifices. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands as if in a posture of worship, lifting up your hands to God as if you're worshiping. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And we know from obviously this story where it ends, Cain's hands are stained with the blood of his brother Abel. Your hands are full of blood. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Verse 17, learn to do good. Verse 18, come now and let us reason together. This famous verse we're all familiar with. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Does it sound like Israel still has an opportunity to make right? Just as Cain had an opportunity to make right. God is confronting Israel here in Isaiah chapter 1. Just in the same place he's confronting Cain over in Genesis chapter 4. He's saying, what I'm seeing so far, this is not good. The trajectory you're on, you need to move off of that path. It's not too late to change your mind, to make good decisions, and to go the right direction. He says, you need to do these things. And if you do, I'm going to bless you, right? Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient... Or like Genesis 4 would say, if you do well, you shall eat the good of the land. That's a form of blessing. Just as God would say to Cain, will you not be accepted? Isn't he implying you will be blessed? And then verse 20 of Isaiah 1, Isaiah 1.20, but if you refuse and rebel, which is the same as God spoke to Cain, if you do not do well, right? And what was the promise if you don't do well? It's the opposite. It's the opposite of blessings, Right? In Genesis chapter 4, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. You're going to be devoured is basically what it says. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 20, but if you refuse a rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. So it's kind of the same message, just on a national scale. And I would say just as it applies on the individual level for Cain, and just as it applies in the historic perspective on a national scale for Israel, it can just as easily apply to us on an individual level and to us corporately, even on a national level, that God would come to us and would say to us, the things I'm seeing haven't made it so bad that I have to curse you yet. I'm coming to encourage you to repent. I'm looking for you to make wise choices where you're making foolish choices so far. Where you're inclining to do bad, I want to see you do good. I want to see you obedient. I don't want to see you disobedient. He would say that to us as individuals. He would say that to us as a nation. He would say that to us as a church, just as he said it to Israel, just as he said it to Cain, that God comes before it's too late. He doesn't sit back and watch and just say, let's see how this turns out, (laughs) right? He takes an active role in trying to see that we make choices that are for our benefit, for his benefit, for his glory. All right. First mention of sin. It is the first mention of sin. Good observation. Have we had sin yet in Genesis? We have had sin. We have had sin when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit. We call that original sin. But yeah, the actual word for sin, this is the first mention of the word sin. Good observation. Well done. (laughs) Dave's all embarrassed over there. (laughs) Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. This phrase that says sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. In the NIV, it says sin is crouching at your door. 
Sin is crouching at your door. I actually just taught on this last Sunday to a, a group of third graders, and I was teaching on this very verse, and I got up and I went outside the door, and my middle daughter's in that class, and I called her out, and I hid behind the door, and she's like, oh dear, what's dad going to do? And she knew what was going to happen. She came to the door and I go, rah, you know, jump out, you know, scare and everything. Obviously, it's playful when it's a dad and a daughter. It's something entirely different in a spiritual sense. When it's outside our door is Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? In a spiritual sense, I mean, if you think about it, what is our door? Our door should be the place that we feel the safest, the place that we can go through in and out with the least amount of concern for our well-being, right? If that's the place where sin is crouching, if that's the place where, say, Peter would say Satan is crouching, waiting as a roaring lion, waiting to devour us, to destroy us, to rip us spiritually limb from limb, that's a bad place for sin to be crouching. I would want to feel safe somewhere. If I can't feel safe on my very threshold of my own door, then where can I feel safe? God is saying to Cain, if you don't do well, you won't have any safe places. You will be in a place where sin is waiting to take a hold of you, to grab a hold of you, to, to tear into you and to rip you up. It's going to destroy you. God is warning. You're going to be destroyed if you keep on this path. If you keep going in the direction you're going. Sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. The New American Standard Version says you should master it. You should master it. So we have an obligation, just as Cain had an obligation. We're to master it. I don't feel like I've mastered sin. You remember, we've talked about, this has come up several times, how we have been saved, and we are being saved, and we will be saved. When we have been saved, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. But sin is still present, and sin is still powerful. As we're being saved, we're being saved from the power of sin. There's a struggle that lasts for the rest of our lives until we're glorified in Christ where the power of sin should be getting weaker because we are getting stronger in Christ. But that doesn't say that the presence of sin is, is, absent, that sin is absent. That comes when we're glorified in Christ, when we will be saved, when we'll reach that point of glorification, we will be saved not just from the penalty of sin, not just from the power of sin, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. But until then, sin is still present where we dwell. And so there is going to be a battle that we're going to be engaged in. So sin lying at the door, its desire is for us, and we should rule over it. When is sin lying at our door? When is sin lying at our door? Maybe when you get a receipt for purchases you've just made. And you recognize on the receipt that you have something in your cart you didn't pay for. It's not on the receipt. Sin's lying at your door. What are you going to do about that? You're going to master it? Maybe you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and then they wave to you with that one-fingered wave. And you feel that boil up. and That's sin crouching at your door. But you must master it. How about you live in a residential area? Maybe you have kids, they're playing in the front yard, and somebody goes by at 60 miles an hour. Since lying at my door, I must master it. So is that a sin when the basketball goes rolling out? The <laughs> the next time? That's not a sin. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay, maybe it is. <laughs> How about when uh, the child we've told to go to bed four times gets up again? And as the parent who wants to instill in our children the importance of obedience, that mm, something boils up in us. How about we've got an important meeting the next day and we can't fall asleep because the neighbor's dog is barking incessantly again, yet another night. Sin is crouching at the door, right? How about we get ridiculed at work, slandered? Sin is crouching at the door. We buy a used vehicle and the owner invites us to list whatever price we want so we can save on the taxes. And if we lower it down a thousand dollars we'll save 80 bucks and who's going to know sin is crouching at the door it's tax time and it's time to figure out what i'm going to choose to list as deductions that are work related sin crouching at my door it's late at night it's a lonely road let's see if this car will go over 100 <laughs> sin is crouching at my door right <laughs> i should be doing that there's no end to the list pretty much these are kind of funny ones some of them and some of them aren't how about you're feeling underappreciated by your spouse? Sin is crouching at your door. You're on the computer and you did a Google search and something comes up you didn't expect and it looks like an enticing link. Sin is crouching at the door. An inmate makes comments to us that they're going to track us down, find where we live and kill our family. Sin is crouching at the door. You have a daughter who's been raped, and you know who he is, and you know where he lives. Sin's crouching at your door. Or you have a loved one that's been killed by somebody texting or drunk driving. Sin's crouching at our door, and we must master it. That's not so fun, but it's the right thing to do. We try to instill in our kids, do what's right, even when it's hard. And there's lots of times in our lives, I would say daily, if not many times a day, where we have to make choices. And sometimes in those moments, you can almost imagine sin is crouching right outside your door, and your choice is going to make a difference on what happens. Your choice is going to make a difference whether you allow sin to destroy you because you've allowed yourself to compromise in an area that you know you shouldn't. It's as if sin is crouching at your door waiting to devour you. Here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, it's interesting where it says you should rule over it or you must master it. It's actually in the original language an emphatic pronoun. And what that means is God says you to Cain as if he says it twice. And you, you must master it. He's really putting the emphasis there. So what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to pray and to seek God's help in those big decisions and small decisions. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for patience. Ask God for endurance, courage. And rest assured that if you're in a situation that you can't actually handle, he will step in. But if you're in a situation that he knows you can handle, 
He expects you to step up. He's not going to do for us what he expects us to do for ourselves. Too often we give up too easily and we say, oh God, this is the way I made, or oh God, I can't do this. When if we could hear him speaking, he would say, yes, you can. If you have children, you've seen this, where your children grow up and as they're young, it's especially obvious, they ask you to do things for them that you know that they can do for themselves. And if you're always going to do those things for them when they ask, are they ever going to learn that they can do it for themselves? Probably not. It's those times when you refrain from doing it for them and explain to them, I know you can do this. And you let them find out that they can do it for themselves, that they grow confident in their abilities, in the areas that they're called to do things on their own. It's the same with our Heavenly Father and us. When he calls us to do something that he knows we can do, and we say, oh God, I can't do this. Sometimes we need to be listening for God to say to us, yes, actually you can. And when we're obedient and we do the hard thing, we find out what we can accomplish because he gave us that ability to do it. We find out that we can accomplish those things and we grow in confidence. There's a story that I read this week talking about Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer. Muhammad Ali once said that he had come up with a way to resist temptation. Wherever he went, he always carried a small box of matches. Whenever I go to a party and I'm tempted by a beautiful woman, I simply pull out one of the matches and strike it, Ali said. Then I put it out with my fingers and remind myself, hell is a lot hotter than this. Wow. <laughs> Turn to 1 Corinthians 10.13. Some of you have this verse memorized. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If you don't, I encourage you to memorize this one because the times you're going to need it, you're going to need to have it memorized. You're not going to be able to find it when you need it if you don't have it memorized. Somebody mind reading 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common demand. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. What's the promise there for us as God's children? What's the promise? Not beyond your ability. Yeah, it's not beyond your ability. That we're in those times that we know have destroyed us in the past because of bad choices we've made. We find out now that there's a way of escape. God has provided a way of escape for us. And in each of those situations, we need to be looking for the way of escape. Not the way to, uh, let's see how far and how far I can push this. Let's see how long I can linger here and not get burned. All right? No. God's provided a way of escape. You look for the way of escape and you take it. So one of the ways that you can master sin is by looking for, expecting, and knowing that God has provided for you an avenue, a way of escape in your times of temptation. All right? So when those times of temptation come, imagine or picture the sin, the lion waiting right outside the threshold of your door. Recognize that your decision, even if it seems like it's no big deal or you buy into that lie that nobody's going to know, recognize it will have an effect, good or bad, depending on how you choose. And if nobody actually does see, you know full well God does. And you know full well it's going to damage your relationship with God if you choose the wrong way. So in those times, make the decision actually ahead of time. 
that I'm going to do what's right even when it's hard. Does this say then we're going to be perfect and we're never going to fail? We're going to fall. We're going to stumble. We're going to trip up. The difference is, though, those things, when we trip up, we get back up. When we stumble and fall, we stand back up and keep on going. And it should be, ideally, those things happen less and less as time goes on. One of the things we see in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And James 4.17 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil. Both First Peter and, and James saying, resist the devil. James 4.17, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Provides for us a great promise. He'll come back, but at least you're going to have some reprieve and a chance to rest. <laughs> All right. This Christian life, if somebody's saying to you it's easy, be careful. Be careful. All right. It's a battle, but we're in it with God. And he supplies the strength we need in the times that we need it. But he calls upon us to exhibit strength in the times that he knows we can make it. All right? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we know that you're not going to put us into any situation that we're not going to be able to handle and sometimes handle that by finding the way of escape by exiting stage left. God, we also thank you that you promised to make up for our lack. In the areas that we can't handle it, we pray that you would give us discernment to know that's what's going on, that's the area that we're in. We pray that you would help us to have courage to move forward and continue the fight. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to keep climbing and keep going. In the times, Lord, where we're in a battle that we actually can't handle, we would pray that you would help us to have discernment there too. Because if we try to get through those spots on our own, on our own strength, Lord, that's just as bad. We pray that you would help us, granting us discernment to know the difference. And Lord, in those times when we're in a situation that we actually can't handle, thank you, Lord, for the promise that you more than make up for what we're lacking. We thank you, God, that we can, what, what does it call us, be victors in you? Thank you, God, for the, such great promises. Thank you, Lord, for seeing us through. Thank you that what you started in us, you intend to see to bring to completion. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.